Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 11th part in our series, Rome, the Decline of Democracy. Where we last left off, the Emperor Trajan had just finished his rule as one of Rome's best emperors, making peace with the Senate, conquering new territories, and overall increasing Rome's prosperity during the era of Pax Romana. Brett, welcome back to the show. What great emperor lays waiting in the shadows for us next? Uh, last time we spoke, we ended with Trajan and his death and the, the rise of his protege, Hadrian, who uh, is sometimes referred to as the Greekling because of his love of Greek culture. Um, he was, there's, there's some interesting stuff with him. Potentially he was not picked by Trajan himself, but rather Trajan's wife who favored the young boy and, and really wanted him to be the emperor. And she kind of like um, orchestrated his crowning some validity to that that theory. So yeah, so Hadrian would be next as the Greekling, but I think we're going to skip over Hadrian. We're going to go a couple of emperors down the line and wind up at Marcus Aurelius, mm. the, philo the philosopher emperor. As a quick background, Hadrian is going to meet Marcus, the young Marcus Aurelius when he's like a child because he is a the grandson of a close friend of his. And for whatever reason, he's going to like love this kid. And <laughs> I guess first impressions are everything. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He, <laughs> he clearly saw something. In, excuse me. He clearly saw something in this boy and he has the boy um, kind of like set upon this path of uh, like the, the political ladder, so to speak. He has him, in, uh, entered into several like um, clubs, cults, whatever you want to call them, that he's too young to get into, or he doesn't technically qualify for. But he, you know, he's the emperor, so he has it done anyway. Um, and people are kind of like, I mean, you, like even we are kind of already seeing the writing on the wall. So he's entering the. He's not technically in the cursus honorum. The cursus. The cursus honorum is like the 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 set stages that a man would take to kind of like rise through the ranks of Roman politics, but he's starting and he's starting at a really, really young age before he's even 10 years old. It's, it's interesting because he's too young to be the emperor, right? He's by the time that he's like um, 15, uh, he's going to be wed to the daughter of a man named Lucas, who is Luci Lucas, Lucius, who's currently the Hadrian's choice for emperor, right? This man is constantly on death's door. That's his only notable thing, is that he's always near death. Hadrian, I mean, not to, t to editorialize too much, but Hadrian clearly had a plan of having this constantly near dead guy be the emperor for like a couple of years and then dropping dead and then having Marcus take over. Sort of like a custodian that can just watch over things until Aurelius is old enough to actually take over. Absolutely. That was absolutely the plan was to have Lucius be emperor for maybe let's say five to 10 years and then die. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, the problem is, is that the plan works too well. And Lucius dies before Hadrian dies. And thus he can't, he can't, the, the whole order of operations is thrown out of whack, right? He did too, too good a job of picking a sickly person. So instead, Hadrian picks uh, another man named Antonius Pius uh, on the condition that Antonius Pius adopts Marcus and for some reason, Lucius's biological son, a man that we'll know as Lucius Verus in the uh, the near future, right? We'll just call him Lucius for now. Uh, it's worth noting that uh, Marcus doesn't really like Hadrian. Actually, no, let's start with this. Marcus, his family comes from the Iberian Peninsula, just like Hadrian and just like Trajan. Spain is pumping out, is like a fairly new addition to Rome, and it's pumping out really strong leadership right now. So... He's all he's like the heir of like a brick manufacturing company. Uh, company is not really a thing yet, but you can think of it like that a business, right? And he's 
already very reserved, very quiet. He's homeschooled. Um, Roman public education, if you think American public education is bad, you should see what public education looked like uh, in Rome in in the, you know, like the mid 100s AD. It's just pretty <laughs> awful. <laughs> it's awful for all the reasons that we say American education is awful too, which is funny. Is like they never learn to think for themselves. They just learn to like repeat arithmetic problems, repeat the answers without ever even learning how to find the answers. They just say like, you know, like one plus one is two, two plus two is four, four plus four is eight. But if you were like, what's four plus two, they wouldn't know the answer because it's not one of the ones that they memorized, right? So a lot of rote learning going on over there. It's all rote learning. And they, yeah, they learn, they learn um, or learned. I don't want to say learn because there's not <laughs> many Roman schools anymore, but they learned um, how to like, write out the scripts from like famous orations before they learn the alphabet. So they were writing scripts to things that they couldn't even themselves read. You know, that's interesting. It kind of reminds me of even China to like uh, pass their civil service exam. You had to be able to verbatim write like, you know, Confucius and then later Neo-Confucian texts. And people would actually say, well, are you just memorizing this so you can get your civil service job? Or do you actually understand the wisdom that's like embedded into this text? And like, I think, I think that's a danger that goes on today. You know, I think, I think when you have like an overly uh, testing culture, one has to scratch their head like, okay, it seems like you've done a good job memorizing this. Are you really going to remember it three years from now? Aaron, I'm going to tell you a secret. When I got bar mitzvahed and I had to <laughs> recite part of the Torah in Hebrew, I only learned phonetically how to speak it and never learned what I was saying. I just memorized the, <laughs> the phonetic pronunciation of everything and, and said that. So I know for a fact that this still goes on today. Sure, sure, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you got further in, bar, in, in Hebrew school. I dropped out of Hebrew school, so you did a lot better than me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well <laughs> well that aside um so yeah so marcus uh was never so one thing is that it seems like roman public schools really like beats the the life out of out of roman children right and marcus considers it one of the best things to ever happen to him that he was not he was homeschooled right mm -hmm. he learned from some of uh some of the greatest philosophers of his day at home, right? Which is obviously not something that everyone can do, but when you're super rich and your dad's BFFs with the emperor, you know, that so that kind of stuff can happen. So he gets like a Alexander the Great kind of tutoring from like, almost like Alexander was tutored by Aristotle. So like he's getting a pre, Aurelius is getting a premium like philosopher education here. Yes, for, for sure. Because I mean, a lot of the emperors get this. This is a rich person thing at this mm -hmm. time to be homeschooled by like Greek slaves. And, and I think we spoke in the past about how slavery in the Roman Empire was not always equal. There were slaves that would probably we would recognize today as like middle class workers, right? Now, this, this is something I really just want to touch upon really strongly here. As you know, Brett, this is a uh, philosophy podcast. And, I did know that, yeah. <laughs> and what's very interesting, I love the way that you just described the Roman education system where the masses are pretty much taught like rote learning techniques, right? Like, okay, here's what you're gonna need to do X, Y, and Z, right? And I, I noticed that there's this pattern of like elites or people in power really getting a really hardcore philosophical education. And I, and I think a lot of the reasoning behind that is that, oh, well, you're so-and-so's son, eventually you're going to become you're gonna be in a position of power where you're going to need to make a lot of executive decisions. And I, I do to some degree see that even happening in America where a lot, if you talk to the average, per, oh, become a nurse, become a, uh, you know, become a PA, a PA. like we, we go for these very practical careers and something like philosophy is not really as like advertised, I would say, for the working class as much, because it's almost presumed that you're not going to ever be working in a position of like high executive functioning. And I, I kind of see that going on in Rome 
this, the same exact thing going on here. Like it's not like a plebeian doesn't really need to know what Aristotle said. They just need to know how to make that bowl really, really, really nice. And I, I think I think there is kind of this two tier educational system that kind of goes on today. Well, so I would agree. It's it's a little bit of like a chicken and the egg kind of situation where on the one hand, there's a lot of factors. Uh, so on the one hand, one factor is just resources. Yeah. Um, the, the rich can afford to pay at, for better education. In our day, this is less and less true. The, you can't buy your way into higher into truly great higher education. You have to earn it. And on the flip side, if you are truly gifted in the United States anyway, you, you have a decent chance of getting to um, to learn and, and grow. Right. Like I'm not I'm not going to sit here and tell you that our education system is perfect. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that we all have an equal shot at being, you know, like successful via schooling, because that's obviously not true. But I will say that we're a lot I guess this is almost like a non a non saying, but we're a lot closer than we were 2000 years. Oh, ago, no, right? no doubt. No, no doubt. I mean, um, so but but back then, much more uh, if you wanted a good education, you needed the money. You could be a genius. But it, it literally would not matter at all. You can't afford those private tutors. Then you're not getting educated. It's going to go to waste, right? So that's one factor. Another factor is this idea that what they learned, what like Marcus Aurelius, let's take him, for example, what he's learning is how to be a good leader. He's learning how to make deals. He's learning how to be, a, I said it, he's learning how to be a leader, a yes. competent and effective leader. And would it really help the the son of like a poor pottery maker to learn how to be an effective leader. I, right? I hear I hear you on both fronts, but I think that I, again I can't take the values of, of America and and like throw them back two thousand years. So like it's a very yeah. tough case. But I would say at least in America I would say yes. Like even if you are if even if your parents are poor, I still think that you should have exposure to that realm of thinking because I think what it does is that it actually one gives you a, a great deal of confidence but it also gives you the ability to think critically and independently I think I think I think if you don't have a, a strong philosophy I'm obviously biased because I run a philosophy podcast but I think that if you don't have great exposure to philosophy it kind of limits your ability to really think independently well, part of it is is that from our perspective, it's like this is like a common fault that that people will fall into is you're thinking like, well, you might as well learn philosophy, you know, like like these kids today, they're watching TV, they're playing video games, they should be thinking critically. But back then, time spent in school is time not spent tending the farm, sure, herding the sheep making the pots this is money on the table this is food out of the mouths of these families and there's a real trade-off this is not a matter of like oh you know this dullard doesn't even think critically he's couldn't even write an essay on uh on aristotle it's like they need the time to to make the money to, to eat or or they'll starve oh i'll give you i'll give you a little uh sneak preview of what aurelius would say the happiness of your life depends upon the quality of your thoughts. So even if you're not necessarily using that executive decision making or that philosophy to like be a power wielder or a king point, you know, or to appoint kings, just having a better sense of thought can actually allow you to negotiate the drudgery of farming or the drudgery of when there's not enough food to eat or how to even properly save for the future. Like, okay, we're not going to have this huge, we're not going to like overindulge on Tuesday so that we have enough food for Wednesday. So I would argue that like, even if you're not going to be king of uh, emperor of Rome, having some philosophy, even in your day-to-day -day life can actually make a significant difference. I would agree. I don't think any amount of philosophy is going to save you from not having enough food to eat, though. <laughs> I, I, I struggle to see where that will help. But but no, you're correct. So it's it's a combination of one, the rich can afford better education. Two, the better education is better suited for the lifestyles of the rich. It's less useful for the poor. As you said, not totally useless, but it's just less useful. And time is is important. They don't have all day 
There's work to be done. They don't have all night. Rome is a famously dark city at night. Rome, like the, most of the ancient world, would just shut down when the sun goes down. So there, you are. Your your time is very valuable in the ancient world, and and you gotta learn what what you need. And the truth is, is that even regular school they didn't need what they were learning. Even the stuff you're talking about, like philosophy of like the philosophy that would improve their lives for the most part is taught by the parents roman school was more almost like it was more like history and the last thing is that the the early era of this the romans just like even if you take away the you know oh only the rich can afford it oh only the rich need it it's just they were new at this public education was a fairly new thing and they were doing the best they could. They they didn't know yet what was important, what would matter. So Marcus Aurelius is getting tutored privately. While he's being tutored privately, uh, in his about his his mid twenties, he's gonna pick up this growing trend in Roman philosophical society uh, called Stoicism. Mm-hmm. He's gonna be taught by a man named Rusticus whose name should sound at least kind of familiar. And uh, Rusticus is going to teach him everything he knows about what it is to be a Stoic. Um, the quote that you you just said, um, you know, it, it comes from his Stoic background, right? Um, yeah. It, it really spoke to him. And, and it shouldn't come as a surprise why, given what we know about him and how meticulous he was and how uh, generous he was. And he was not self-centered and... and very duty bound and duty driven and because of this mm-hmm. like it's no like stoicism fits him like a glove right he is it, it it helps if anything stoicism is going to help marcus deal with being the emperor because he from what we can tell is not super thrilled about being the emperor in the first place right he wants to just read all day and think he has duties to perform Right. He has roles to fill. And that's what stoicism is about. Stoicism is about doing your duty and performing the roles that you're supposed to perform. And so I think in a way that helped him. It helped him shoulder that burden. I, I think I, I think that, you know, not all philosophies are created equal. So if you are, for example, a hedonist, I don't think that's a good philosophy. Um, to adapt if you're going to be a Roman emperor. The philosophy that you carry with you, they're not all created equal, but I think that stoicism, if you're going to take a job that is pretty much dedicated to public service, I can't think of a better philosophy. No, I, I would agree with you. The public servants should be stoic. They should be duty bound and they're their number one priority is serving the people, right? Although it's it's a little bit, it's confusing with Rome because it's like, are they public servants? You know, they like should they're, be. <laughs> they're, kings. they're kings, right? Are kings public servants or are servants public, of, or are the, is the public servants of the king, right? It depends ideally, on where you are. Well, if you ask Plato, ideally they should be philosopher kings, but we can get into that another time. Right, so Marcus um, is going to get, when his father adopted father Antonius Pius dies. Antonius Pius was was a decent ruler. We could touch briefly on on what he was doing. Um, he kicks a lot of cans down the road for his children to deal with and for the future people of Rome to deal with. Um, inflation is starting to become an issue that he kind of ignores. There's a brewing war with the Parthians and King Volagasis the, uh, the fourth that uh, is kind of starting up that he's ignoring. That's going to be a problem. There's problems on the the Danube frontier. That's going to be a problem that he's just ignoring with the Germanic tribes. But during his reign, none of these things boil over. So he generally gets the pass for for better or for worse. Right. Not under my watch. (laughs) No, exactly. So he, when he finally dies, he leaves the um, he leaves the 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 emperorship. That's not what it's called, but he leaves control of Rome to his his son Marcus Aurelius. Right, Marcus Aurelius, for whatever reason that we we don't know, we still don't know, 
demands from the Senate, because remember that there's still like this charade of democracy going on, even now, even in a hundred, even like a hundred years after more than a hundred years, even like 150 years after uh, Augustus Caesar has taken control of Rome, there's still the charade of democracy, right? And the Senate is the, the body that confers authority onto the emperor. They're the ones that are like, okay, uh, we give you all these titles, we give you these positions, we give you these powers. It's all very orchestrated and no one's under any kind of illusion, but it, it's good for public perception, right? And uh, to the surprise of everyone, Marcus appoints, or Marcus demands from the Senate that they also elevate his bro- his half-brother, Lucius Verus, to the, the rank of emperor. And this is, at the time, this is pretty unheard of. It shocks people. Who would want to share power like this? It's crazy. Uh, Rome has never had an official dual power sharing thing uh, up until this point. They technically, there's some kind of power sharing going on in Rome with um, Augustus Caesar and his first and his second in command Agrippa, but it wasn't like official. And in actuality, what ends up happening with Marcus and Lucius is very similar where Marcus is like the the top top and Lucius is like his second in command, right? Mm. Uh, Rome in like 150 years, this will be the norm having multiple emperors, right? Rome is fast becoming too large for one person to govern. And maybe, maybe Marcus saw that, or maybe it was through some uh, kind of like um, stoic desire to fulfill the wishes of, the person before him. Well, I, I think you know. I might venture a guess here: is that if he thought that his right to be emperor was going to be challenged, he might have just made a preemptive move and been like, "Well, we could have this guy preemptively challenge me to be emperor, or I could just right off the bat make a concession to him right here." And I've already like done him a solid. And if you do someone a solid and you already put them in power, even if it's just a perfunctionary role of just like, okay, I'm going to make you co-emperor, you've kind of stroked their ego a little bit and you've made a potential enemy into a friend. So when Emperor Diocletian forms the Tetrarchy, he does just that, right? So it's interesting that you say that. It's very heads up. Um, you know, you're, you're, not in bad, you're not in bad company thinking that. Lucius and Marcus had as far as anyone can tell, a good relationship. And uh, Antoni, whatever, whatever, um, whatever plans Hadrian had for Lucius died with his death because mm-hmm. Antonius Pius could not care less about Lucius. Uh, even though Lucius got the same education and the same advantages that Marcus got, Marcus was always the main son. Um, part of like what they do to like... Um, kind of like show you as going to be the next emperor is they like they make you the the current emperor will make you a consul right and there's like i won't get too deep into it but let's just say there's like different levels of being a consul depending on the year that you're made a consul and whether you're like the first consul or the second consul for the year right and marcus always got the good version and lucius always got the bad version Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that is to say the bad version of being the president is not necessarily bad, but it's certainly worse than like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of like a, a... sort of like an informal VP kind of position there. <laughs> yeah, 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 you could. Yeah, you know, and that's that's fair. Imagine if uh, imagine if your your father made, you know, you the president and your brother the vice president. Yeah. Being the yeah. being the vice president is no slouch. No one is gonna laugh at you for being the vice president, but at the same time it's pretty clear who your dad wants to lead the country when he's gone, right? Uh like that, right? Lucius was always overlooked uh as a kid and as a young adult. Um whereas they each kind of had their own coping mechanisms for being in positions of such authority, but Lucius, authority is not the right word actually, is power because Lucius did not have authority. Marcus had authority even at a young age because he was being groomed to be the consul and the emperor and Lucius just straight up was not. So while Marcus was kind of like putting duty first 
so he could one day be an effective ruler. Lucius was falling in with a crowd of gamblers and prostitutes and actors, those filthy bunch. Uh, and funny, funny, funny anecdote in Rome, an actor was considered to be like of lower social standing than like a prostitute. <laughs> like you would be more looked down upon if you were an actor than if you were a literal prostitute in Rome. I oh my, how things have changed. How things have changed, exactly. Like it was, it was um, jumping forward like a little bit when Emperor Justinian took the throne of the Eastern Roman Empire, his wife Theodora was an actress and it was this huge, huge scandal. They like could not believe it, right? It was, it was crazy. Anyway, that's going way off topic. So Lucius is kind of becoming um, more hedonistic, like you said. You know, it's, it's funny that you mention it. His brother is becoming more hedonistic as Marcus becomes more stoic. And the, the, my point that I'm making here is that I don't think Lucius ever really wanted to rule, right? He was happy supporting the green faction of the chariot races. Uh, yeah, funny story. Rome had... So there is, so there's a really good quote here from Meditations that might actually explain Aurelius's thinking on this subject, and that is, okay. how much time he gains who does not look to see what his neighbor says or does or thinks, but only at what he does himself to make it just and holy. And I think Aurelius's plan here is to be like, I don't really care, as long as this guy is not harming the empire, I don't really care what it is that he's doing. And I think there's a good lesson that can kind of be taken here because oftentimes in, in life, we concern ourselves with other people and what they're doing, even if it doesn't directly affect us, okay? Like obviously if you have a boss or a coworker that's preventing you from doing something, you gotta take action. But if Aurelius is smart enough to kind of distract his his brother and get him just like, oh yeah, 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 have fun at the horse races, my friend. That's a classic stoic move there where you're not really even paying any attention to anybody who's distracting you in any such way. And as long as they're of no harm, you're immediately just pursuing what you believe to be virtuous. Whereas I think someone who may not be steeped in stoicism as much might get a little too caught up like, hey man, you know, you're making the uh, the empire looking bad here. And that could have caused like a friction. But I think that's a stoic move right there to just worry about yourself as long as that other person is not interfering with your happiness. Oh, absolutely. And it's it's definitely editorializing to say this, but I, I often wonder what their personal relationship was. They they clearly were close enough that Marcus trusted him to be second in command when he had no, no um, pressure to do so. And even though they were very distinctly opposites, a stoic and a hedonist, uh, they did, they were no major issues and they did things in unison. When, when they were made co-emperors, the first thing they did is they went to the Praetorian guard camp and bribed the guards, which sounds seedy, but I assure you it's what all the emperors did at the time to ensure <laughs> that to ensure that the military and the, the police essentially in Rome were loyal to you. But the point is that they did it together. They went down together and did it, right, as a joint show of force, which is kind of a big deal. They There's not much record of them kind of like disagreeing and doing things opposite. When Marcus told Lucius to like sober up and get his shit together and do something, Lucius would do it for the most part. And when Lucius was like, hey, I think we should have these really crazy games and put on some fun for all the people of Rome, Marcus would begrudgingly be like, okay, fine, let's do it. Ah, and this brings me to another quote from Meditations. Waste no time arguing about what a good man should be. Be one. So I think Aurelius is just immediately thinking to himself, okay, this is a lost cause right here. Um, have fun. You know, I will, sure, sure, my friend, I'll, I'll be at that party. Oh, it's 930. It's rather late. I got to go. You know, so like, I think that he has this way of just fundamentally understanding fundamental sense that you can't really change people's nature, but you can kind of humor their nature in a way that makes it benign. One thing to, to keep in mind here is that he's not just brushing off Lucius, because if he was, he wouldn't have made him emperor in the first place. But he's doing, see, the, the thing is, is that he's giving him what he thinks that he wants. Like Lucius thinks, 
oh, I want to be emperor. So Aurelius is saying to himself, absolutely, my friend, you're just, you, my friend, are just as powerful as I am. Absolutely. But in reality, he's kind of, he's, he's secretly undermining, like he's secretly taking his power away by just being like, oh, my friend, Lucius, you don't want to deal with that road, that, that like road project over there. That's going to, you're going to be up all night worrying about that. Tell you what, my friend, I'll, I'll take that off your plate, my friend, so you can go have fun with your prostitutes later. So he's taking, he's giving him, he's giving him the power of emperor and letting him have fun and feel like a big boy. But in reality, he's quietly stealing things off his plate and he doesn't even see it happening. It's possible. I would, (laughs) I would disagree though, if only because Marcus didn't need to do that. He could have just, there's no evidence that Lucius wanted to be emperor or had any machinations to be emperor. And then when Marcus names him emperor, he didn't have to do that. He could have, if he wanted Lucius's authority, he could have just not named him emperor and just did everything himself. He wanted something. He wanted him to be emperor for some reason. I kind of see it as like balancing the Senate. It's like, you want these people to be happy. And, you know, it doesn't and you can make them happy without necessarily giving them power. But if you give them the illusion of feeling powerful, they're going to be plenty happy. So, again, like like I said, I I do. I see I see some stratagem here. But Lucius was already happy. He was already doing what he wanted to do. Um, But it could be it could be. I I think that uh, regardless, the result is that a fairly surprised Lucius and a fairly confident uh, Marcus ascend the throne and become co- the f- emperor's empire's first official co-emperors. Their their reign is pretty hectic. Like within very short time of their father Antonius Pius dying, Vologases the fourth kind of like makes the move to conquer Armenia. Armenia is like a major major player in. In this region, in this time period, it acts as an important buffer state between Rome and then whatever empire is currently running things in the east, whether that be the Seleucids or the Parthians, right, mm-hmm. or or whoever. You know, there's lots of different kingdoms kind of rise and fall in that area. Um, but Armenia is really important. They're the buffer state. And we constantly see Rome and we'll just call them the east fighting over it. Vologases IV kind of invades Armenia, uh, deposes the pro-Roman king, puts up a pro-Parthian king, essentially daring these young emperors to do something about it. So uh, Marcus sends Lucius. He says, Lucius, please go take care of this. And Lucius shrugs his shoulders and is like, fine. <laughs> if, you, if you insist, uh, older brother. <laughs> And off he goes, right? Um, Lucius parties the entire way out there, making numerous stops, taking his time, lots of, of celebrations in every Greek city on the way out east, right? Mm. He does eventually arrive. When he arrives, and here's the important thing, here's what separates Lucius from Nero or Lucius from um, Caligula, right? When Lucius arrives, he, his friends, his drinking buddies, his gambling buddies, his chariot racing buddies, or I guess you would call them his sports buddies, um, you know, the prostitutes, the, the actors, the actresses, the whatever, he dismisses them momentarily. Mm-hmm. He's like, guys, could you just give me a minute here? And then he goes, who here knows what they're doing? And then some Roman field commanders like raise their hand tentatively. And they're like, I've been in charge here for like, 10 years on the frontier. And he's like, great, what are we supposed to be doing right now? And they tell him the strategy and he's like, great, go do that. And then he goes back to his gambling and his, his, right. And if that was Caligula or that was Nero, they would have appointed their friends as the new field commanders. Right. Yeah. They would be like, you're, you're not in control of the Senate, of the Senate, of the army anymore. Uh, my friend is, he's going to do a great job. I've known him since college. You know, we, we used to call him, you know, turd sandwich when we were in a frat, when we were a frat together, <laughs> he's going to do great, right? <laughs> Cronyism. Cronyism yeah. is the name of the game. And it's, it, it really, to me, is a powerful message that 
the person at the top could be completely ineffectual and completely disinterested. But as long as you don't have nepotism or cronyism in play, things work out all right, right? The system works relatively normally, as long as it's only like one or two people at the top who are dicking around. I, I, I completely agree with that analysis. And it's like, I, I think what this comes down to is like, you know, if you're a knucklehead, that's fine, but just realize that you're a knucklehead, you know? And I think, I think that the ego sometimes overtakes people. And I give Lucius a lot of credit for at least realizing, hey, me and my friends are too dumb to really do anything right here. Let the experts take over. I mean, yeah. Just... <laughs> and, and, and that's what he does. And it's pretty effective. The, the, the Parthian war goes well. And Lucius does pretty well. Um, he comes back with a name so long, so many titles. He comes back as because obviously, even though his subordinates are the ones winning the wars, as is even in the modern day, he is taking all the credit. He comes back. His name is Lucius Aurelius Verus Augustus Arminicus Parthicus Maximus Mediacus. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a lot of titles, right? You know, I, I'm wondering, I, I'm thinking like a lot of Roman conflicts could have been brought to an end with a bunch of alcohol prostitutes and some long names, right? Like, I think that's what everyone was really looking for all along. You don't, you don't get a, you don't get a name like this without making some serious moves, Aaron, okay? Um, but yeah, the, so he does pretty well. Uh, Mark, uh, he comes back and celebrates a triumph, which, um, as we kind of discussed in the past, is like a, a military parade. Uh, and even Marcus shows up to join in the festivities, something he normally doesn't like to do. But Big Brother is, is proud of, of the accomplishments that they did. And he should be. This is, um, this is a brief moment of success towards the end of, of this era for Rome. You have... Uh, a, a little war that goes well for the Romans. They get a little bit of territory. They depose some kings. They make some money. Good, good all around. And that's, I think that's a, you know, another part on Aurelius is that this is truly mastery of the ego, where it's like he's so duty bound that he's going to show up to his younger brother's victory, and he's not going to be like, man, I, you know, I'm not there in the spotlight or whatever. He's kind of able to just step aside and that that again is, is an idea of stoicism where you're taking your ego and just really suppressing it so it's like non you're you almost are a non-existent being and that allows you to actually execute your duty in a way that's much more faithful than if you're you know an ego first person and he does that he's he's very reserved very duty bound but he's certainly willing when it is required of him to not be that okay this this war will have lasting consequences for Rome and the world around it. As the way that Parthia and the whatever kingdom is in control of this region at this time makes money is by taxing and regulating trade economy over across the Silk Road, the Silk Road being the main trade route from the Han Dynasty in China out to the West. And they will bring back with them a plague what we today know as smallpox, what they call the Antonine Plague, and it's going to devastate Rome. And one of the effects of this devastation is going to be a loosening of the grip, as it were, on the Germanic tribes north of, of, of the east, right, on the Danube and the Rhine. And because of this, lots of wars are going to break out in this area. And Marcus, who was never a military man, is going to have to learn very quickly how to be a general and how to lead troops. And like you said, it's it's not because he wants to. He would prefer to be home reading philosophy books. He does it because it's his duty, because mm -hmm. he has to. It's what's asked of him. And they're, for now, they're riding high. They're pretty happy. Fast forward a little bit, and the plague is kind of taking... So there's two, two, two things at, at play here. Thing number one is that to have enough soldiers for this war with the Parthians, they had to take troops off the, the, the frontier, the, the Germanic frontier. And the Germans kind of realized this. They're like, hey, the Germans kind of realized this. They're like, hey, um, the lights are on. And the Germans kind of realized this. They're like, hey, 
uh, I, the lights are on, but I, I don't think anyone's home. And they start getting braver. Um, one thing about, th this is worth getting into, I, I think, which is when we think of Rome and we think of, like, we romanticize that period, we think of Rome as, like, the super advanced civilization surrounded by these dirt farming, pig whatevering, barbaric savages. But that's not totally the case. And then the other question is, why do you think that Rome was so advanced and these other places weren't? Was Ro were the Romans, were the Italians just like genetically better and it enabled them to be so much smarter? The answer is no, is that Rome wages different kinds of war, economic, psychological, political, social war, to suppress the tribes and keep them small and keep them bickering so that they can never kind of consolidate and rise up and be a threat to Roman hegemony. Rome focuses its attention on keeping these tribes weak so that they do not have to fight them in wars. Ah, it's a classic divide and conquer strategy. Absolutely, Aaron. That's what they're doing. It's a divide and conquer strategy, and it's incredibly effective. And the problem is, is that starting with Antonius Pius and now with Lucius taking troops off this border, the Germans are more and more being left to their own devices. And when left to their own devices, they're seeing they have more in common than not. And they're starting to unify a little bit. They're starting to talk about joining their armies together to attack Rome. Not necessarily to invade it, but to like steal from them. Yeah, uh, Rome's attitude towards its border states is always one of control and controlled trade. Controlled, they want to make sure they're always getting the better deal. The Roman walls at this time are not like what you would consider to be like, like the Great Wall of China, like just like a giant wall that people are kept out of. And if you get too close to the wall, someone dumps rocks on your head until you leave. They're more like trading posts. The walls are there to force people coming into the state of Rome to kind of like funnel into one location so they can be questioned and taxed and evaluated and assessed. It's like a mod, it's like a pretty much a border. It is a border. It is a modern day, ancient version of a modern day border, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so Romans is definitely doing that. And when they have to take attention away from those states to do other stuff, like fight the Parthians and deal with a plague, then the, the, those conditions get relaxed and the Germans coalesce into a stronger fighting force. This is around the time that German, the German people start to become an issue for Rome. And, you know, I, I think this is one of the consequences of just, you know, as your empire gets larger, everything is just going to be stretched that much thinner. And if your troops are already stretched thin already, one little crisis can kind of just send you over the edge. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's that's what's happening here. Is yeah. That, um, they're, they don't have the bandwidth to deal with this because the Antonine plague starts with the soldiers. It's, it hits the soldiers and the military the hardest. So when the, when the, the Germans are, are attacking on the border, Rome has trouble defending, let alone raising more men to, to go on the offensive because they just don't have it. People are dying at too quick a rate. Lucius does not live to see this war with the Germans. He dies of, at the time, they call it food poisoning, but now we believe was probably the Antonine Plague. And Marcus himself will eventually succumb to the Antonine Plague. This devastates, this devastates the empire. The key takeaway here is that German, the Germanic tribes are becoming stronger and Rome is not equipped to deal with it anymore. The last 12 years of Marcus Aurelius's reign are dealing with these Germanic tribes and dealing with the plague. But while this is all happening, he also has a son. I mean, hmm. he, has, he has a lot of kids. Marcus Aurelius has 14 kids with his wife, Faustina, which is ridiculous. But <laughs> the, the important one here is the, this boy, right, Commodus, who is, is the... the not one of the five good emperors, which should kind of give you an idea of the direction Rome is about to start heading in. 
Commodus is a little sociopath. He's going to be on everyone's list of like top, bottom five worst Roman emperors of all time. Uh, he's an Oguda. And the some of the blame must fall on Marcus. I mean, picking your own replacement, that's that's on you, right? And but he does for whatever reason, Commodus is is bad. Commodus is not like his father in any way. He maybe is too young to rule, but honestly, I'm I, I don't have a, a real answer for you, Aaron, in terms of like why he's so bad. You know, there's this interesting story that I read about Aurelius where he actually goes to a resort town uh, to take care of some business and everyone's kind of pressuring him to just chillax, relax, like have a drink. And, and Aurelius is completely sworn by his like stoic duty. He's like, no, I, I completely live by this. And, and I think that a good quote that kind of embodies this, do every act of your life as though it were the very last act of your life. And I think, I think that Aurelius has this, this really important, like he, he takes time so seriously in being a good emperor that I think that he actually neglects probably something really important, and that's his son. Again, I wasn't there. I can't really say that, but you could imagine that even even all of these philosophies, you know, as I said in the beginning of the program, all of these philosophies are not created equal, and some might be better than others, and there's many virtues to Stoicism. One of the criticisms, though, of Stoicism might be if you are too duty-bound, if you are too focused and too uh, tunnel visioned in one direction, there's always something else that's going to be falling apart around you. And I think that if you are very successful in business, if you're very successful as being uh, an emperor, well, something else is always going to be falling at the wayside. And I think in this case, that might be family. It could be. I mean, um, Marcus, uh, to his credit, tried at least a little. We, uh, you know, Commodus is about 10 years old during the Marcomannic Wars, which are the wars with the, the Germanic tribes, and he's present. Mm-hmm. He's present. So, so Marcus Aurelius at least has his son there to witness how to lead an army, how to lead men, how to, uh, how to do your thing. But it, it clearly either wasn't enough or it didn't work. The the Danube is prob the Danube front is, I would say probably no place for a child. But it, it, we didn't know they didn't know we know they didn't know how bad it was actually going to be. It's funny because Commodus actually had an elder brother who died at a young age, mm-hmm. and it's like it, it's unfortunate. The world would be a very, very different place if if that kid lived to adulthood. Right, right. Now that's interesting. It's interesting that you say that Commodus spent his more formative years, you know, basically in a war zone. I can only yeah. imagine what that would do to someone's psyche just to, to be seeing like these. And I think, I think it's you know, there are grown men who go off to war and come back with PTSD. I could imagine what that could do to a ten year old. And and. Maybe, you know, maybe that's a time where Aurelius would have been like, you know, he was probably thinking, well, my duty is to take my son and train him here on the uh, on the front. And it's like, maybe that's a, a moment where it's like you also have a duty as a father to kind of you want you don't want to overly protect your son so he's useless and won't be able to rule one day. But I think there's also judgment calls that have to be made about like what, you know, at what level. And I think I think that um. Hadrian was really smart in the sense that he knew that, hey, Aurelius is too young right now to rule. Like that, that, that's silly. Let me go ahead and uh, you know put this intermediary emperor so that when Aurelius is ready, he can rule. And I think that's the kind of stuff that Aurelius needs to be focused on. Like, hey, my 10-year-old, you know, I love your son. You're going to do awesome things, but you shouldn't really be here on the front with dad. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> they, Marcus and, and Commodus joint ruled when Commodus was maybe like 10 years old to like really try to get him to, to understand how to rule. He starts his, his solo reign when he's about 20 years old, which right. is a little young, right? And that's when, that's when things start to go off the rails. But he tried. He tried for the first 20, because Marcus wasn't there after 20 years, or after he was 20 years old, right? He dies of the Antonine Plague. But he was trying. 
we don't know how successful he was. I don't want to say that if Marcus had lived longer, it would have been better because I don't know if that's the case. I don't want to say that it didn't matter if he lived longer because Commodus is just like a born sociopath because I, <laughs> I don't know if that's the case. I just know that these are the events as they unfolded. Yes, yes, absolutely. And look, you know, again, as I've said before, you know, Aurelius is one of my favorite uh, emperors, I and I love Stoicism as a philosophy on the whole. But I think one of the important takeaways is this idea of balance. And I think that um, if maybe he had, if he had just taken a day off every now and then and just showed his son a little bit more lightheartedness, a little bit more fun, like today we're going to be playing our Roman catch or Roman baseball right now. I have no, you know, whatever it is that they were doing, I think that develops character. Like character is not just developed in your duty. It's also developed in your leisure. And I think it's important to have both facets uh, somewhat cultivated. And, and, I, and, I, and I say that strongly because when even it's important to take your duty strongly, but you also have to be a bit lighthearted with yourself at certain times. And I think that if, if people don't see that, if you don't kind of develop that as well, it can end up being quite a blind spot. I'm not saying you should be a, a drunken fool like Lucius, but you do have to know when to kind of like loosen the belt and unwind a bit. Definitely. And, and another, another factor to consider is that like Marcus, the way he treated Commodus as a child, a young Marcus would have been okay with that. Marcus was a very unique individual. Maybe he thought, as a lot of us do erroneously, like, hey, if I can handle it, you can handle it too. The, the golden rule, as it were, is, is not as bulletproof as people make it out to be. Treat others the way you would like to be treated. It, the golden rule really should be treat others the way they would like to be treated. Yes. No, I think that's an excellent point that you're, that you're making is that sometimes we say to ourselves, and this is, and, and again, I think this is actually a bit egocentric in the sense that, well, well, if I could do that, why can't everyone else do that? You know? Oh, absolutely. And it's like, not everyone is built with the same hardware or software to be able to do the things that you're doing. It's borderline toxic. It gives, it gives like, it gives, um, a pass to people who uh, are either like don't care, who are either very nihilist or or are very perfectionist to just kind of throw their weight around, right? Like if you're really good at everything, then you get to be super critical of everyone because you're amazing and and following the rule of like treat others the way you'd want to be treated is like, well, I would want to be yelled at if I couldn't do something as simple as solve the theory of relativity. I mean, what kind of dummies are we dealing with here, right? And then at the same time, people who don't care about anything are like, I'm going to abuse this person because I don't, I wouldn't care if I was being abused in this way. Yes. And to kind of leave us off, I'm going to end off here on one of Aurelius's quotes. And maybe he should have followed this one a little bit more with the way he raised his son. You always own the option of having no opinion. There is never any need to get worked up or to trouble your soul about things you can't control. These things are not asking to be judged by you, leave them alone. All right, Brett, thank you so much for uh, being on the show here today. Thanks for having me, Aaron. This concludes the 11th part in our series, Rome, The Decline of Democracy. I'm Aaron Azrod.